a reading from Acts 2, 17 to 18, and Colossians 3, 22 to 4, 1. Acts 2, 17 to 18. In the last days, it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Colossians 3.22 to 4.1. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Oh, Lord, thank you for your word. And uh, I pray that you would bless us as we consider it, as we think about it, Lord. Speak to our hearts. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's open by looking at a little video. Where are you? Maybe it's right where you need to be. Cultivation happens in your vocation and the workers are few. You can be called, but first the caller must change you. I'm constantly encouraged by the missionaries I meet. For instance, Pam's a podiatrist, she has beautiful feet. Raheem is a boxer, he's beaten the best. But his hardest fight is when he's daily fighting his flesh. I know a doctor, his name is Jason. He prays that the Lord keeps working on his patience. Sarah works in fashion, but she's no slave to the dollar. She's clothed in righteousness, whether white or blue collar. Jimmy is a fisherman, but he's found new purpose. He fishes for souls, but he calls it networking. Ling is a judge out in Las Vegas, but her favorite part of work is the cross-examination. Keisha owns a bakery with her husband, Ramon. They always tell their kids not to live off that bread alone. Keith plays basketball, and everywhere he goes, he has a defense for the faith while reaching for his goals. Theo is an officer, and this might sound crazy. He's the only cop I know who wakes up to die daily. My cousin at the IRS, his name is Thomas. <laughs> On many different levels, he deals with false prophets. Cultivation happens in your vocation, and the harvest is plenty. You don't have to be an architect to build a better city. Today, we're continuing our little mini-series called Real Worship. You know, we're getting back to Joan when we go to June. Uh, in June, we'll be going back to finishing off Jonah. Real Worship, the idea of that series is we often think of worship, you know, when you attend worship, you go, that's when I attend corporate worship on Sunday morning. But actually, real worship is what happens in your life the rest of the week. That's where it's there where you show 
you know, what it is you place first, what is your ultimate, what do you trust in? what do you desire, what do you meditate on, you know, how do you live your life, that is where you show what you truly worship. And today, we're talking about how our work is um, worship, and what that looks like, how, is the, how are those two things connected, you know, I was with a friend actually this week, and he was, um, uh, he's actually one of my childhood friends, and he had you know, bought a company and a number of years ago, someone else bought the company and he said, and they made it, he made a ton of money, more money. So he didn't have to work, you know? And so I think him and his wife, well, this is great. You know, we got a bunch of money now and he wasn't working for a while. And when I talked to him uh, this last time, he almost had to apologize. I didn't talk to him in a little while. He had to apologize almost and try to explain why he felt like he needed to get a job. You know, <laughs> because he goes, because he was kind of floundering around. I go, I need some organization. I need something. And, and we could tell what was happening in the back of the conversation was this bigger question, why do I work? You know, is it, is it just to make money? And therefore, when you have enough money, you don't need to work anymore? You know, he's not a Christian, so I couldn't go, but it's really a theological question. And outside of a framework of who we are as people, the purposes in the life, it's very hard to answer that question. Why exactly do we work? So that's what we're going to talk about today. Because as I said, work is actually worship. So we're going to talk first about how does Pentecost relate to work? How does Pentecost transform work? Then secondly, we're going to ask those two questions, why your work matters to God and why God matters to work. And I, I need to say that um, this is Tim Keller's phrase, which I just love, and he's done some great work on this. So I'm, I'm stealing liberally from him and his great thinking on the biblical idea of how to think about it. But Pentecost and work, why your work matters to God, and then lastly, why God matters to your work. So firstly, Pentecost and work. So on Pentecost, you know, the Holy Spirit was given, you know, and, and what that really is, is, uh, I mean, it's a lot of things, but one is it's a foretaste of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God arrived, but only in part. You know, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who confess Jesus as Lord, right? So the kingdom of God is any place where God is reigning, right? And so if he's reigning in your life, then there is the kingdom of God. But many places in this world, it's not. And we know the day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus as Lord. And the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And then that, you know, that, that, then that is the ultimate. But now we're in this present time when he's dwelling in the church through his spirit in those who confess him as Lord. And there he is, Lord. And that has a profound impact on how we think about work. You know, our, the, the, the passage, and we don't put it up just yet, Dan, the, the passage that uh, Roz read from Colossians uh, 3 is actually really controversial and might have even been disturbing to read this exhortation to slaves. And, uh, but really, this is like a, a work relationship, employer-employee. And I, I need to say, this was a greatly abused passage especially abused to justify the horrors that was slavery in our country. And it was wrongly abused. And many, many Christians thought, no way can you use that here. And uh, just to, for us, our own, our own help, this is a very different context than the first century in which this was given. You know, that was in the first century, that was, and even with the laws in the Torah as well, this was not race-based. It was not people being kidnapped and the horrors and the brutality of uh, our slaves have been completely different. And, uh, you know, there, you know, a lawyer, a doctor, 
you know, it could be people could be in temporary slavery. They can enslave themselves based on their debts or for other reasons. They could buy themselves out of it. In many ways, it was more like an indentured servant. In fact, in in Israel, people could choose after seven years to either go free from slavery or actually to have their, you know, basically become choose to become a slave for life in a household. And you may think, why would anyone want to do that? Well, because it was very different. You be people lived in households. You know, you lived in these giant household systems. And as I would say, there were three main relationships. I think, I think it was Aristotle talked about the three main relationships in the giant household in which you kind of govern these relationships. It was husband and wife, the marriage, parents and children, and masters and slaves. And so these were these different relationships. So people lived in these huge households. In fact, this was the only translation she read was the RSB, is that I could find that translators would treat that same word in the same way in Acts 2 and in Colossians 3. They, don't, they usually translate one of them servants and the other one slaves. And the reason they would do that is the word is, you know, though in English, those are, in our modern English, those are very different ideas. But back then, it wasn't as different of an idea as you might think. So they were, you know, so in some ways, the it wasn't a straight a servant because there was more control, like a slave, like an indentured servant more. But nor was it really like as we think about slavery. So, so all that to say, though, but there was control and there was some brutality. I don't want to downplay it at all. And, and he really exhorts and says what happened on Pentecost with the spirit be giving, with you being part, both members of the kingdom of God who confess Jesus as Lord should radically change what you guys, uh, what actually happens now in your lives. If you look at the passage now in Colossians 3, and that's the Acts 2 where it talks about how the, you know, the, there it uses that term slaves, but it talks about the Holy Spirit actually coming on slaves and coming on women and everyone. So there's a sense that there's an incredible equality across that. You know, that everyone is the, you know, there's no people who some people get the spirit. The people may be, you know, in charge in your society are of no higher level than anyone else. And that's one of the great sort of messages of Pentecost, that the, it raises up the low and lowers the high. But this is now you're in this relationship in this household. How should it impact you? And uh, now if you look in Colossians 3, it says, slaves, it, it said, obey your masters. But again, it's hard for us to understand, but it's, it's sort of like within, you can imagine an employer you know, to employ you obey your boss in some ways but and whatever you do here's the key work at it with all your heart as working for the lord not for human masters since you know you'll receive an inheritance from the lord as a reward it's the lord christ you're serving and that's the key is you are actually it appears that you're serving in this situation serving in this household but actually you are serving jesus while you're here not that person whoever your boss is and to the bosses, with this is the part that would have been outrageous. You can actually see in the old codes when they talked about those three relationships, the people who were exhorted were slaves, children, and women. And then Paul flips it around and exhorts husbands, uh, fathers, and masters, which would have been like you know, would have everyone who read this gone, what they have responsibilities? Yes, it says you better know, you better do what is right and fair because you have a master in heaven. The idea that both of you guys are serving the same one. You know, you are both serving the Lord. You are both slaves of the true master who is Jesus. And we are all his bond servants. You know, even as in, in Acts 2, you know, my slaves, which is all of us. When we confess, confess him as Lord, we obey and follow him. Now, the idea here, though, is that, um, or many ideas in terms of work, is that that servant's work, all of it was done unto God. We see that our work lives are a place where we serve Jesus. And also, 
all work lives are. There aren't some jobs that don't and some jobs that are. That every job, every place you have, every work that you do, you are doing it under the lordship of Jesus. So it gives an incredible dignity to all work. There is no work that's irrelevant. There's no work that's, you know, beneath it. And there's no place in your life where Jesus is not Lord. So your work lives are his. So that's a key way in which Pentecost transforms the way we think about work. But it's even more than that. Because it says, you know, why your work matters to God. Yeah, one is that he's Lord over all of it. But there's even something else going on here. And that's that God actually works in the world through us. Right? So say, say there's someone hungry and he's crying out for food. And God provides food for him. But how does he do it? He provides it through a person who provides that food. In fact, beyond that, he even provided it, you know, as in a sense, through the person who planted the seeds and who grew it and who harvested it, who ground it, who made it into bread, who shipped it, who brought it to that very place. Every one of those things was the way God was working in the world. Like right now, you know, you're, you're worshiping Jesus, right? We're worshiping him together, but you're doing it on a screen. You're actually wor worshiping through, you know, Dan doing Zoom, you know, and doing his little moving around on that. The people who wrote that software, you know, wrote that technology, the people who uh, built the screen you're actually looking at. In many ways, your worship now happened through God's activity in all these ways. Martin Luther makes a big deal about this. If you want to look at this screen, he said, God could easily give you grain and fruit without your plan plowing and planting. I mean, God could just drop it down, but he does not want to do so. You know, and he goes on to say, you know, God chooses to use these methods. He doesn't just give us stuff. And he says, it's our work. He works through us. And he says, what else is all our work to God? Whether in the fields, in the garden, in the city, in the house, in war, or in government, these are all the masks of God, or it says even the disguises of God, behind which he wants to remain concealed and do all things. This idea that God is actually at work in the world, disguised in a sense, in us doing our work. It's an amazing thing. And this would have been a kind of radical too, because at that time they would have thought, oh, it's clergy, you know, or missionaries that are doing spiritual work, right? We're all doing non-spiritual work. And he's saying, no, 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 no. All our work is spiritual. And everything you do is spiritual because it's all unto him. This is how God works in the world. So whatever it is you're doing, God is working through you. So therefore, your work is spiritual as much as, you know, clergy or missionary or other work. There's not this divide of doing spiritual things and non-spiritual things. All, everything is spiritual. And you might say, why does God do this? Why does God decide to work through us? Why not just give us the bread? Well, think about why you um, give your kids tasks to do. Does anyone here ask their kids to clean up after themselves in the house? Do you ask your kids to clean because they're really good cleaners? And boy, that place is going to be sparkling clean. It's all about the task. You need that house clean. I better get the kids to do that. No way. If it was about the house being clean, you actually wouldn't let your kids touch it, right? You, you clean it yourself or get somebody else to do it. But no, you have your kids clean. Why? For them. So they can grow up. And they realized in the process of that cleaning, they learn things about work. They learn things about diligence. 
they learn things about compassion, understanding, because they're worried, they need to be worried about other people and realizing their actions impact others. They're learning to be responsible. They're being prepared for life out in the world. There's all these things you accomplish with it. And also there's something about you're working with them as well. And all these tasks you do, it's, it's, it's a relational piece with them. You're having them do stuff, you're doing stuff. And there's always that relational piece. And this is why God works in the world through us. This is one of the ways he raises us up. He teaches us to be like him. We, we, you know, we grow in maturity and fullness of our people through our labors and through our work. It's one reason my, why my friend in some ways was falling apart because he couldn't figure out what it was. And he felt a, a lostness to that. You know, I'm not saying you have to have a job, but there was a sense of why I'm working, whatever form that took. And he realized, you know, a life of leisure wasn't, <laughs> there was something missing. You know, even though he didn't follow Jesus, he realized there was something wrong with that life. Now, uh, Luther goes on and talks about how, and how we actually, you know, God, God, sort of, we do the work and God works with us. He says, you know, make the bars and the gates, but let him fasten them. Labor and let him give the fruit. So, so like, you know, you plant the tree, you, you water it, and it's God who bears the fruit from it. So govern and let him give his blessing. Fight and let him give the victory. You know, we go to fight, but it's God who actually gives the victory. You know, for me right now, preach, that's my job, but God's the one who wins hearts. It says, take a husband or wife and let him produce the children. Eat and drink, right? We do this stuff, our labor, our work, but let him nourish and strengthen you and so on. In all our doings, he is to work through us and he alone shall have glory from it. So the idea that God is now working through us, you know, we, uh, you know, we choose to do things, but then that, that blessing that God acts actually the one who brings fruit from our labors. And so we, you know, right. You know, if you're a war, we, we will put up the walls but it's God who protects the city, but he is working intimately through our putting up the walls. So that's why our work matters to God, right? Because it is the way in which God works in this world. Now, why God matters to our work is the last idea. Because, and it's actually critical, right? Actually, you could say, well, because God cares about our work, of course, God should care about, you know, God should be a, a part of how you think about your work. But more than that, think about the most obvious place that the scriptures say where God works through people in the world. One of the most obvious places, the most controversial places is through the government. I mean, it's actually called like your authorities are called um, ministers of God. And that's this idea, right? You know, God set up the world not to be an anarchy, but that uh, God would actually work through authority systems. This is how he would care for groups of people like governments, the very government idea and management of things are from the Lord. And that's how he would operate. But we know that just because a government may be the way God had set up the world to be governed and that God would work through them, it doesn't mean he always does, right? There are lots of wicked authorities. There are lots of authorities who are abusing that system or governments that are operating terribly. Um, Congresses that don't do uh, operating terribly. But the idea that government doesn't work right means that uh, it's not necessarily following God's ways. The way it's really set up is that a government would operate, but then it would try to operate in a way which is pleasing to God. There was a, a Christian way, a way of faith, a, a right way to govern. You might say, oh gosh, what is that Christian way to govern? We should just tell everybody about it. Well, there's not one Christian way to govern. Does that make sense? 
like there's for instance, a software engineer there's a way to be a person of faith as a software engineer but there's not only one way to be a christian software engineer but there is a distinctiveness to it and that what makes it distinctive is not um the things you do right it's not the oh these are the things you should be doing the key is who you are serving in that place and who you working before is what transforms the way you work right so because everybody is different right everyone's got a different there's always every every context is different every context is nuanced every single person's gifts and abilities are different so you being set apart to God and obeying him in your particular workplace is always going to be different. There's not going to be two that are identical. And it may even be that in your different jobs, it could be different in your different workplaces with your different levels of responsibility. It's always going to constantly be looking, looking different. But the key is it will always be distinctive. You should be able to answer the question, what does being a Christian in that job uh, do for you? What is, how does it change how you work? You know, think about it. Is there no change? Is there no difference? It should, because he is the one who is Lord over that work. You might say, well, gosh, what, give me practicalities. What does that actually look like? Well, it can look like a lot of things, you know, at these minimum level, of course, it's going to, it should thoroughly impact how you treat other people, for instance. You know, I mean, you know, as it said, you know, uh, what, it, what it talk about to the slave? And for instance, you may say that my, my, I don't have a, um, a spiritual job at all. There is no real Christian application in the way I work my job. I think, really? Who's this, who was the first exhortation we listened to? It was to slaves, right? They had no choice as to what they would be doing. But he said that they could be fully serving God in that place they are. So they were, their, their act of servanthood would be distinctively Christian. So any job you have has a distinctively Christian way. Look what look at again in Colossians, what it said, what made their job distinctively Christian is they said, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, working as for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord. It's Christ you're serving. So there it was with working with all of your heart is what made them distinctively doing, doing it not for praise from people, but for praise from God. And that would then distinctively change their job. You could pull that down. And so uh, what does that look like in your job to be distinctively working with all your heart? What does it look like as you care for people as seeing everyone made in the image of God and everyone worthy? When you see that yourself, it doesn't matter your position, you're not worth any more than anyone else. It'd be radically different. You know, if you're, a, say you're a CFO or something, of a, or a CEO of a uh, public company, you may say, well, gosh, the main thing I'm responsible for is to make as much money as possible. That's our ultimate for the shareholders, right? Because they want to see profit. But you may say, well, you know, actually, um, I know my responsibility to my shareholders, but my ultimate actually isn't money. You know, if I even went to the shareholders and say, hi, it doesn't matter what I do to our employees just so we can make more money, I bet most of your shareholders would say, no, actually, I, I do care for those people. They're real people you're caring for, right? You have a responsibility to them. It's gonna impact how you think about the labor force in your company, where you're saying, well, gosh, we should just you know, cut corners on this product we have, so, because it will create more, um, more money, more profit. But you might say, well, why did I make that product to begin with? I'm actually making this product for the betterment of folks. You work for a pharmaceutical company, right? You know, you're making a drug which you're hoping is going to help people. And it's it's not that profits are irrelevant, right? It's how the whole company works and goes together and operates in that way. But you're not 
you're not driven. You know, there are some drug companies that have cut things to actually cut corners, but it's like you're, you're stopping what you're trying to do. You know, you're trying to help people and that's your job. So, and all of our jobs have aspects like that, how we treat with people, how we manage people, or how would you like, and I think also even how you do your work yourself. Let's say you're given a task, which is one of these no-win situations at work. You know, those things exist. There are situations you are handed and there is no good way out of this. Well, you know, you, the fact that you know you're serving Jesus in the midst of that should radically transform that sense of panic and failure you feel. You know, how to diligently walk through that, even in this no-win situation. And of course, it should impact, if, let's say you have people who are working for you, who you're managing. Would you want to give them no-win situations? How would you work with them when they're in those no-win situations? There's actually tons of situations throughout your work, tons of contexts in which your faith should be impacting us. Because you're going, I'm walking in this thing and I may have an, an employer or I may have employees, but all of us. You know, these are just responsibilities. We are all serving Jesus, and that should radically impact our work. How do I you know, be a person of hope in the midst of my workplace? That's going to be a very different place, and that's going to look differently in every different work context. You know, I was uh, Bob sent me an article this uh, past week, which was really cool. It was actually this, you know, um, it was actually on a sports website, right? So it's all just kind of sports articles. But then this article is one of the writers talking about how he had gotten a, a terrible form of cancer and has it, and they don't know what it is. And he was he wrote basically about how his faith and how the scriptures were what he was looking to for you know hope in the midst of this really dire situation. And when you uh, read the article, you think, I mean, it was so powerful. And you're thinking, what what website is this? What's it doing in the middle of this sports website? And you might. And, uh, you know, it was one of the writers. And you might think, well, gosh, that month, that's how he was, was distinctively Christian in his workplace. Because when he wrote this sports article, he talked about his faith. But actually, my guess is he was distinctively Christian in the rest of his work life, which brought about the opportunity to share this. You know, my guess is he, not guess, I mean, he was obviously a very good journalist, one who was entrusted by others, you know, that his workmates looked to him, you know, and he, he's able to rise up to a level of success in his field. And then actually when that moment came, he was actually able to be explicit with it. He had the trust of his editors. He had the right to be able to publish these things. So it's funny, he, you know, you might think, oh, that's when he was explicitly Christian. Well, he was actually probably, you know, Christian impacted the way he was a journalist that actually made him rise up to the, you know, the height of his field, which enabled in this particular moment to be able to give this powerful message in this unlikely place of hope in Jesus. So all our work is, you know, we are serving Jesus in our work, and all our work should be distinctively Christian, and realizing that God is actually working through us in the workplace to accomplish his will, and to realize that some of the challenges we have in our workplaces figuring out how is it that I'm supposed to be God's person in this workplace. Actually, part of that wrestling is the very way in which God transforms us, changes, matures us, and grows us up. You know, Pentecost says that the Holy Spirit has fallen on you, and you are empowered to do what he's called you to do. That amazingly enough that God is present in this world through us. God is working in this world through us. Who knows for you know, what reason God has put you in such a position, even as he said, 
you know, maybe you were raised up for a time such as this, even as to Esther, that each of us need to take that calling into whatever we are, that I am God's person in this place. How great is other people raised up to places of influence in those workplaces? Because I think God wants people in every industry, in every workplace. He wants his people carrying out his will, wherever they are. And through his spirit, he's given us the power to do it. Let's pray. Ah, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your goodness and your mercy, Lord. Thank you for your word. And thank you for the promise that you are with us always. And I pray, Lord, that you will really send us out as your people into our workplaces, that we might understand and know what it is to follow you and to obey you in whatever work you've set before us, how to be people of integrity and strength, how to show your glory in how we do our work. Thank you, Lord, that you do uh, more than ever we ask or even imagine, according to the power that's at work within us. To you be the glory. In Jesus' name.